Good morning, church. As the kids are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. These verses that we're going to look at this morning are, without a doubt, some of the most debated verses in the entire book of Revelation. And to be quite honest, I've really been looking forward to covering this this morning. Not because I'm a glutton for punishment, but uh, because how we understand the rest of the book of Revelation depends in large measure how we understand these verses. In fact, at several points as I've been making my way through the book of Revelations over the last year, I've wanted, I've been tempted at many times to fast forward to chapter 20 so that I could provide more justification as to why I'm interpreting various passages the way I was. Because how we handle these verses in large measure determines our hermeneutic for how we handle some of the other difficult passages in this book. So now we're finally here. But before we launch into it, I think there's a word of caution that I would like to offer to each of us, and that is that we need to be careful to not miss the proverbial forest for the trees. There's really no way around us needing to spend significant time this morning on the academics of understanding the interpretive techniques involved in interpreting these passages and these verses. We just have to do that. But I don't want us to get so sidetracked by the academics of understanding the nuances of how we come to grips with this thing called the millennium that we miss miss the larger picture of what's happening in this part of the story. Jesus has just returned. The second coming of Christ has just happened. And he's defeated the Antichrist. He's defeated the false prophet who seeks to deceive us. He's defeated the armies who had gathered together to defeat him. He's wiped them out. And now we, the church, stand on the precipice of the eternal state. The final judgment is about to happen in the next part of this chapter. And then... The eternal state will be ushered in. The new heaven and the new earth will descend. And we will enjoy his presence for all of eternity. And so this is a glorious reminder to us this morning. To to we who, who live as believers in Jesus Christ in a world where evil seems to be advancing. Seemingly unchecked all around us. Where those who reject the gospel seem to be growing where the enemies of the Lord seem to be succeeding. Yet we have this glorious reminder here that in the end, evil will not win. In the end, Jesus wins. And as we see in this passage, it's really no contest whatsoever. Jesus the King returns. He defeats the enemies, all of them, ours and his And his reign and rule with us, who are his children by faith, will be forever. It will be without end. The only question we've got to deal with this morning is, will there be a thousand-year interval in between his return and that final state? And will Satan be released one final time to rebel against God one last time? These are the questions that are before us in this passage And I'll do my best to handle them for you. But here's the thing, and I want us to really come to grips with this. I want to make sure you hear this. This morning, we are going to look at the four main interpretations of how to understand the millennium and how to understand these passages. And all four of them fit within the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity, all four of them. There's one to which I hold to a bit more closely than the others, but all four of them are legitimate and possible. And for each of them, we could provide, I could provide you a list of Bible scholars that are much smarter than any of us in this room that affirm each one of these particular interpretations. And so no matter where we fall, 
we're going to find ourselves opposing some very smart people. So I think we have to approach this passage with a great deal of humility. We will not all agree on a right interpretation of this passage. We just won't. So let's slay that expectation right off the bat. And we shouldn't. I don't think we should. I don't think we should find a room of this size with this many people where we all agree on the particulars of this passage. If we did, then that would mean that this is something that's worth dividing over. And it's not. What we find in this passage regarding the millennium is not of primary importance. I don't even think it's of secondary importance. It's something that's tertiary to the Christian faith. And tertiary doctrines are not things that are worth dividing into separate camps over. In fact, I think I could go so far as to say that when you find a church where everyone agrees about the end time sequence of events and all the particulars of eschatological interpretations, usually that's because that church has put way too much emphasis on this particular passage. And yet, it's part of the inspired word of God. And Paul reminds us, when he tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so this passage is to be of some benefit to Jesus' church. It should somehow serve to equip the church. But I would suggest to you that the The sanctifying benefit of this particular passage is not about us rightly interpreting the millennium, but in seeing what this passage has to say about believers, what it has to say about unbelievers, and what it has to say about Jesus Christ our Lord. And then taking those lessons and applying them to the purpose of the book of Revelation, which we've said over and over again, is to equip the church to persevere and endure during times of suffering and tribulation and trial. And so that ultimately is where we need to land the plane this morning. So let's read Revelation 20. We're going to focus this morning on the first six verses, but by way of context, I want us to read through verse 10. Church, this is God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge and to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we continue in our spirits to stay in a posture of bowing before you as we bow before you we are sitting under your word your word is over us and above us speaking to us our place is to seek to grasp its meaning 
and to live in light of it. And so, Father, I pray that you would grant us grace this morning as we seek to unpack this passage. And, Lord, I pray that we would walk away from this with an even firmer grasp of our unity, though our opinions about this passage may be diverse, but that we would be committed, Lord, to living in light of the reality that it expresses. We pray, Father, that you be glorified in how we respond to this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think we can already see that the interpretive approach that we use to this passage can lead us to some vastly different understandings of what's happening here. If we interpret this strictly, literally, as some do, we're going to arrive at a very different interpretation than if we interpret this completely figuratively. The elements of this passage that we have to determine whether or not to interpret uh, literally or figuratively include the key uh, to, the, to the bottomless pit. It includes the pit itself, that abyss. It includes the dragon, which we're told is Satan. Um, it includes him being thrown, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> thrown into the pit and the pit being shut and sealed over him. It includes the infamous 1,000 years in which he remains there. It includes the resurrection of dead people and whether there is one resurrection or two and whether there's one death or two, the first death and the second death. And finally, the element of Jesus Christ reigning on earth during those 1,000 years and the fact that we as believers in Christ will reign with him during that time as well. So there's lots of pieces to this puzzle that we need to sort through. Should we interpret all of these elements literally? Should we interpret all of them figuratively? Or should we interpret some literally and some figuratively? Our answers to those questions will in large part determine where we fall on the millennium question. So let's tar- start with the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit here is the abyss. We've seen it before in our study of the book of Revelation. It is the place of demons. It is the holding cell for demonic powers. We saw it first back in chapter 9 when the fifth trumpet was blown and out of the bottomless pit, out of the abyss, come the demons to inflict uh, judgment and to inflict suffering on mankind. We heard about it again in chapter 11 when we saw the the two witnesses that were witnessing to a lost world. We saw that as a picture of the church. But out of the bottomless pit comes a beast that at least temporarily kills the two witnesses. And then we saw it again in chapter 17 when the unbelievers on earth were enthralled by this beast who, who was, we're told he was and is to come. And it is even now about to rise from the bottomless pit. We saw that beast as a picture of the Antichrist. And he comes up out of the abyss. So now we see this abyss again, this holding cell of demonic power. And we're told in in the first verse that this angel has a key to it. And with this key, he closes the abyss. And he seals it and he shuts it and he locks it. But not until after he seizes the dragon and throws the dragon in there. And I want you to listen again to the words that are used to describe that scene in verses 2 and 3. We're told that the angel seizes the dragon, binds him, and throws him into a pit. And I think that is just a, a reminder to us of how The power of Satan in our culture is so overrated and overinflated. This angel, presumably by himself, seizes Satan, seizes the devil, and throws him into a pit. You know, over and over again, we've seen in the book of Revelation how evil is on a leash. And that it is absolutely no match for God and no match for the heavenly hosts. But now the picture of evil from an earthly perspective is quite different. From our perspective, in our eyes, when we see evil in the world, it seems as if it is, it is advancing unchecked and that it's unmatched. 
But in reality, it doesn't even come close to the power of God when confronted even with a single angel. So perhaps that, that alone will serve to encourage you this morning. If perhaps you find yourself in a place because of circumstances or whatever, to perhaps think more and overinflate the power of evil than is necessary, to be reminded this morning that the very essence of evil here, the very personification of demonic power in the person of Satan is seized by a single angel and bound and thrown into the abyss. But let's look on at John's description here of the imprisonment of Satan. So the angel binds him, presumably with that great chain that he's holding along with the key. He somehow ties up Satan. He binds him in some way and then throws him into a pit. And we're told he shuts it and seals it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And we're told that all of this was for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years, we're told Satan will be released for a little while. And so Satan is bound. He's somehow restricted from deceiving the nations, we're told, for a thousand years. And so we need to understand what form that restriction of Satan takes. And we also need to understand and determine if the thousand years is literal or figurative. But let's continue on with the story at this point. In verse 4, John describes that he sees thrones, and the ones who are seated on the thrones are given the authority to judge and to rule and to reign. And then there is what seems to be a resurrection of dead people. There seems to be a resurrection of martyrs. They're described as those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not received the mark of the beast on their foreheads or their hands. And so this is a resurrection of Believers, this is the resurrection of Christians. And John tells us that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then in verse 5, John tells us that the rest of the dead... Now, if, the, if, if what's being described as coming to life in verse 4 are believers, then the rest of the dead that come to life in verse 5 are unbelievers, So John tells us that they don't come to life until after the thousand years have ended. So John concludes that this is the first resurrection, referring to those who come to life, the believers who come to life in verse 4, as the first resurrection. And then we read down in in verses 7 through 10 that we'll cover in more detail next week. But after the thousand years end, Satan is unbound. He's released from the abyss He comes out to deceive the nations for one final rebellion against God, but fire comes down from heaven and consumes them, and Satan is finally and forever defeated and thrown into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the beast and tormented day and night forever. So, okay, that's the vision. That's what John sees. Now, what are we to make of it? And how are we, in particular, to understand the thousand years? As I mentioned, there are four main ways of understanding the millennium. And again, all four of them fall well within the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. And while I'll tell you which one I prefer this morning, please understand that you are under no obligation whatsoever to agree with me. That's not the point of this morning's passage. The point here is not for me to convince you of my particular eschatological preference. The point is for us to come to grips with what this means in light of the purpose of the book. Now, the four main views are titled according to their understanding of when Jesus returns in relation to this thing called the millennium, the thousand years. So we've got first premillennialism. So premillennialism, like its name, asserts that Christ will return before or pre the millennium. There are a couple of different flavors of premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, and historic premillennialism. And by the way, at some point this morning during my sermon, I'm going to fumble all over those words and just premillennialism, okay? <laughs> so just 
It's going to happen. All right, that's premillennialism. Postmillennialism. There we go. There it is. I'll just say postmill. Postmill will affirm that Christ comes post the millennium, after the millennium. And then amillennialism is really a misnomer because the prefix ah means without or absent from. And amillennialism doesn't say that there isn't a millennium, but that the millennium is spiritual and heavenly rather than earthly and physical, and that it occurs now during the church age. So I want to deal with each of these and provide a little bit more information about each of them because I've not done that to this point in our study of Revelation, and now I get to. So here we go. Premillennialism. So again, there are two flavors of this, but both of them teach that Jesus returns before or pre an earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years. But there are some very significant differences between the two flavors of premillennialism. There is dispensational premillennialism. There's the dispensational view uh, that gets its name from the larger theological framework of dispensationalism. So that's why it's called dispensational premillennialism. The historic premillennial view gets its name, historic, from the fact that many of the early church fathers affirmed that particular view of Revelation, particularly Irenaeus, Papias, Justin the Martyr, and so forth. The dispensational view says that all of the tribulation, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, all of that that we looked at from verses 6 really through 18, that all of that is in the future. Whereas the historic pre-mill will say that perhaps most of that is in the future, but some of that, in particular, some of the early seal judgments, it appears as though Perhaps some of that has figurative fulfillment during the church age between the first and second advent of Christ. The dispensational view says that the millennium is to be interpreted literally. It is a literal 1,000 years. Whereas the premillennial view will say maybe it's literal, maybe it's figurative. Maybe it just means a really long time. In fact, the dispensational view is the interpretive approach to scriptures is that we should strictly, we should interpret Revelation strictly literally. And the adage is you shouldn't interpret anything figuratively unless you have to. Whereas the historic pre-mill view says really the opposite, uh, that some of it is literal, but some of it is figurative. And because the historic premial view embraces very heavily the apocalyptic genre that Revelation is, the adage would be really the converse, that you, don't, uh, that you don't interpret it literally unless you have to, that there's a lot of figurative language here and, and poetic language in the apocalyptic genre. According to the dispensational view, it teaches that the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. That Jesus comes back, takes the church up to heaven, and so the church escapes this time of tribulation on the earth. Whereas the historic premial view, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 19, says that the rapture is, occurs simultaneous to the second coming of Christ. Happens when Christ returns. That we meet the Lord in the air as he descends to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. And so for that reason... There is no secret return of Christ where the church is, is evaporated from the earth and escapes the tribulation. Instead, according to the historic premill view, the church will go through the tribulation. And yet somehow God will preserve the church, especially during the latter judgments uh, of the bold judgments that contain primarily the wrath of God. The dispensational view, according to its theological framework, sees a very clear line of di- distinction between the nation of Israel, and the church. And the Old Testament promises to Israel are fulfilled literally to Israel during this millennial kingdom. And so the end times, according to that view, have a very Jewish flavor to them. The nation of Israel is restored. The the physical temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt. The sacrifices, the sacrificial system is reestablished. And this all happens during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. 
Conversely, the historic pre-mill position sees the New Testament people of God, the church, as recipients of the Old Testament promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And so these promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church, not in the nation of Israel being restored. But both of these, again, affirm that Christ returns before or pre the millennium. And so both of these views will see in this passage in chapter 20 a reference to a future time after Christ returns where Satan is bound for a thousand years, where it's literal and figurative, or figurative, uh, Satan is bound and the dead in Christ are raised, which would include us if we die before or during the tribulation. We're there. We're included in that uh, resurrection and we reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years, whether it's literal or figurative. That's the premillennial position. What about the postmillennial position? Again, this view says that Christ will return after the millennium, post the millennium. But they will interpret the millennium itself very figuratively. It just means a long time, a lot of years, a lot of generations. But it's a long time of the kingdom of God reigning on the earth, and then Christ returns and sets up his eternal kingdom. But the postmillennial view does not interpret, the, does not teach a literal reign of Christ on the earth, but that Christ's reign on the earth is through the church. And so they will say that through the preaching of the gospel, many people will come to faith in Christ and the church will advance and this will usher in at some point a golden age of Christianity where things will begin to improve in the world and evil will begin to subside and that this golden age is itself the millennial reign of Christ on earth, but he's not here, it's through his bride, the church. This view was very popular um, in Christianity leading up to uh, the great world wars. But since that time, the trajectory of the world and the cultural drift away from God and away from the gospel has led many scholars to reject this view. And today it remains very much a minority view among evangelical scholars. But they will look at this passage, the post-millennial view will say that Satan was bound back at Calvary, at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, but that that now allows for the gospel to advance. Now the gospel can go to the nations and that this will usher in at some point in the future a figurative and spiritual reign of Christ on, church, on the earth through the church. And this happens prior to the return of Christ. So after Christ, so, so Christ returns after that. Um, so that's why it's post-millennial. That's post-millennialism. Now what about amillennialism? Again, the name for this is a misnomer because amillennialism is not amillennial. It's not without a millennium. Instead, they would affirm a realized millennium. A millennium that is spiritual and heavenly rather than earthly and physical. The view here will say that the millennial reign of Christ that's referred to here in chapter 20 began with the resurrection of Christ from the dead at Calvary and continues throughout the entire church age. And so even now today at this moment, Christ is reigning in heaven. We would affirm that. Absolutely he is. And he's reigning over his already but not yet kingdom. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not yet been fully consummated. And so he reigns today from heaven over a spiritual kingdom. But when he returns, his spiritual kingdom will become earthly and physical as, as he ushers in the final state with the new heaven and the new earth. The amillennial position is very neat and clean. It only affirms two ages, the current age and the age to come, separated only by the visible and imminent return of Christ. But the amill position has a problem that it has to overcome, and that is that chapter 19 comes before chapter 20, as it always does when you're reading through something sequentially. And so as we're reading through the Bible sequentially and chronologically, the return of Christ, which is covered in chapter 19, occurs before the description of the millennium here in chapter 20. 
But the amillennial will, will say that the millennium is now. It's happening now in heaven spiritually, but it's happening now. And then Christ will return. And so it seems to reverse the sequential order of going from chapter 19 to chapter 20. But this shouldn't be a problem for us. Because we've actually seen this a number of times as we've been walking through this book of Revelation. As the vision that is given to John in this book has telescoped back and forth. From John's day to the tribulation to the very end and then back again. We've seen this over and over. We've called it telescoping back and forth. The amillennial position will call it recapitulating back and forth. Recapitulation simply means going back and retelling the story from a different perspective, from a different point of view. In fact, the amillennial view will, will see the entire book of Revelation simply as a series of recapitulations where the story is retold over and over again from a different perspective. This is the amillennial understanding of the tribulation, that the trumpet judgments are a retelling, a recapitulation of what happens during the seal judgments just from a different point of view. And subsequently, the, the bold judgments in the latter chapters are a retelling, a recapitulation of what was told in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. It's just looking at the same thing over and over again from a different angle. And so in Revelation 20, in these first 10 verses, that this is really just another recapitulation as well. This is another retelling of the story. And so the amillennialists will get to chapter 20 of Revelation, and they will see a picture of Calvary in the opening verses. So when Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, he rose three days later, Satan was defeated. Amen? Satan was, de <clears throat> excuse me, Satan was defeated. Satan was, in a sense, we could say, bound, at least partially, in that act. And as a result of his bondage, the gospel is able to advance now. And so this ushered in this inaugurated but not yet fully consummated kingdom of God where Christ reigns from heaven. And then after this spiritual heavenly millennium, he will return to earth again physically and usher in the final state. That is the amillennial position. Now, you're free to read the scriptures and come to your own conclusions as to what is actually being communicated in this chapter. And again, I truly believe that all four of these views fit well within the boundaries of orthodox evangelical Christianity. But we know that there can only be one true meaning. It can't mean all four of these things, right? In fact, it might not mean any of them. But there can only be one true meaning. But I would assert to you that this side of heaven, we're never going to agree as to what that one true meaning actually is. But I'll give you my preference because I know you're dying to hear it. <laughs> While I am very sympathetic to the amillennial position, I hold very loosely to the historic premillennial position. I personally can't bring myself to the postmillennial view because I just don't see the world moving towards a golden age of gospel advance. I just don't see, I don't think that's what we see around us. In addition, that particular view requires me to see far too much first century fulfillment of much of these uh, prophecies than I'm comfortable with. And so I can't wrap my mind around that particular view. If that's your favorite, awesome. I'm sorry. Also, while the dispensational premillennial view is by far the most popular and widely accepted view of Revelation in, in the evangelical world today, I just don't see a stark distinction between Israel and the church. Instead, I understand the Bible to teach that the church, as the New Testament people of God, are the recipients of the promises of God to the Old Testament people of God, which are the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Some people will call that replacement theology. I call that covenant fulfillment theology. But I just can't wrap my mind around that, and so I can't embrace that particular view either. Now, I think the amillennial position has, in my estimation, much to commend it. It is certainly the majority eschatological view among Reformed theologians of whom I would include myself. But we can't choose an interpretation of Scripture because it is the most popular. But it is. 
Also, nowhere else in the Bible do we see the thousand-year reign of Christ referred to. It's not dealt with explicitly anywhere else in the scriptures. And so why would we make an entire theological framework out of something that's only covered in these verses? And that is true, and even though it may not be handled elsewhere, doesn't mean it's not adequately handled here. The reality is it's not mentioned just once. It's mentioned six times in seven verses. And so we've got to come to a grasp as, what is, as to what is meant by this thousand years. Thirdly, uh, the amillennial position is attractive because it affirms the imminent return of Christ. According to the amillennial view, there is nothing else that needs to be fulfilled in order for Christ to return. He could come at any moment. It's imminent. But, as we've talked about earlier in our study of the book of Revelation, I'm not so sure, personally, that the Bible teaches an any moment return of Christ but rather that his return will be unexpected. Jesus' reference in the Olivet Discourse in the Gospels to him returning like a thief in the night and Paul's reference to that and Peter's reference to that in his epistle and John's reference to that in Revelation 16 I think is not about an any moment return but simply referring to the fact that we don't know when it will be. And when it occurs... It will be unexpected. But if you want to hold to an any moment return of Christ, then the amillennial position is your cup of tea. Fourthly, the amillennial position we've noted is very neat and clean. There are only two ages. There's the current age, which on the earth is the church age, and in heaven is the millennium, the spiritual heavenly millennium, the current age. And then Christ returns and there is the age to come. The final state, the new heaven and the earth, as is discussed in chapters 21 and 22. But my biggest reasons for opting for the historic premill view over against the amillennial view is two things. The binding of Satan and this discussion here about what I see the resurrection of, of the believers. The amillennial position asserts that the binding of Satan that's described there in verse 2 happened at Calvary. And that Satan was no longer able to keep the gospel under wraps. Now the gospel can go forth and go out to the nations. And so the, the binding of Satan in large measure is figurative. It's certainly not fully binding. It's some kind of partial binding of Satan that happens at Calvary. And I just, I just can't find myself embracing that particular understanding of that. I look around the world today and I see evil all around us. I see manifestations of the work of Satan all over the place. I look at the nations, and I see that they are deceived. And I see that they are greatly deceived. Yes, the gospel is advancing, but there is so much lostness in the world and so much rampant evil that I have a really hard time accepting that the current state of the world is what is being described in verses 2 and 3. Listen to that again. The angel seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. To me, this isn't describing our world today. I look at New Testament examples of Satan being active in the world today. Paul says in Ephesians 2, that he's the prince of the power of the air. Uh, we heard Matthew from Scotland preach last week on 2 Corinthians 4, which says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so that they might not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan is active in some way today. And so I, I don't see this, these verses 2 and 3 as describing what's happening in our world today. Instead, I see them as something that is in the future, that is yet to come. The second reason why I opt for the historic premill view over the amill view is this discussion about the resurrection. Verse 4 of our passage talks about uh, the martyrs and those who had not um, worshipped the beast, had not received the mark of the beast. Uh, we're told, uh, he talks about them as coming to life. 
This is the actual words there, coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And then in verse 5, John calls this the first resurrection. I think the plain reading of those verses shows us that this is talking about the physical resurrection of the believer. Which, by the way, is a, is a foundational doctrine for all forms of Christianity, all flavors of Christianity, affirm the bodily resurrection of believers at some point. That we who have been saved by grace through faith will one day be resurrected and receive new physical bodies in heaven. But here's the thing, if the millennium is heavenly and spiritual and not earthly and physical, then this can't be referring to a physical resurrection. And the amillennial position will interpret these verses in that way. This position will say that this is not speaking of a physical resurrection, but rather a spiritual resurrection. So these are those who have come to faith in Christ, have died, and are now reigning with Christ in that spiritual and heavenly kingdom. And that they reign in that kingdom with Christ even now. The Greek word that's used here for resurrection in verse 5 is the Greek word anastasis. And uh, scholar N.T. Wright um, is quoted as saying, Everywhere that we find this word in the scriptures, in the New Testament, it always refers to physical resurrection of believers. But because N.T. Wright is amillennial, he will say, except in this case. In this case, it's got to refer to spiritual resurrection. And I just I find that allowance for spiritual resurrection here over against physical, physical resurrection to be unconvincing. I think that's a matter of adjusting your interpretation to fit your theological framework. I could be wrong, but that's how I see this. Besides, and here's the kicker for me, and if verses 4 and 5 are not referring to the physical resurrection of believers, which again is a foundational doctrine in all flavors of Christianity, but if, if that's not what's being referred to in verses 4 and 5, then the book of Revelation never speaks of physical resurrection of believers, which I find that to be odd in a book that tells us how things are going to end. So I do believe verses 4 and 5 are speaking of a physical and bodily resurrection of believers to reign with Christ on the earth. And so I hold loosely, but I hold to the historic premillennial view. So, so much for the academics. Now, let's not miss the forest for the trees. Look with me at verse 6 again. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We've seen... Uh, Several beatitudes in the book of Revelation. There are seven of them. This is the fifth one. Seven instances where we're told blessed is the one who does this or does that. The word blessed means happy or favored or fortunate. But this is the only one of the beatitudes that includes a second modifier. Not only are they blessed who share in the resurrection, but they are also holy. Now, no matter if you understand this reference to the first resurrection to be spiritual or physical, doesn't matter at this point. Regardless, it is something that is experienced by all those whom God brings to life through faith in Jesus Christ. And those who experience this first resurrection will be saved from the second death. Now, there, there, is, there is no quabbling over what the second death means because John will tell us explicitly in verse 14 that we'll cover next week that the second death is the lake of fire hell and those who experience the first resurrection forget about whether it's spiritual or physical but those who experience that who taste that will not taste the lake of fire hell this lake of fire is where the dragon wants us to go it's where the antichrist and the false prophet and the great prostitute babylon all of whom we've talked about in this book they all want us to end up there in that lake of fire where we will be tormented forever and ever and to be quite honest 
This is where we deserve to spend eternity. Because of our sin and rebellion against our God who made us for his own glory, this is where we deserve to spend eternity. This second death is the death that Paul says in Romans 6.23 are our wages. He says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What we earn, our, our payment for our sin and our rebellion against God is death. He wasn't talking about the first death. He was talking about the second death. Eternal death. Torment forever and ever in this place of this lake of fire. Those are our wages. But praise God, we, we don't get that. The second half of Romans 6.23 says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ alone, we don't get what we deserve. We don't get our wages. Instead, we get what we don't deserve, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can that be? How can it be that we don't get our wages, that we don't get what we deserve for our sin and our rebellion against God? Because blessed and holy are the ones who share in the first resurrection. Sinners who turn to Christ in faith, repenting of their sin and self-rule, and trusting in his finished work on the cross, are made holy in Christ. Our sin is laid on his shoulders as he hangs on the cross. And his righteousness is laid on our shoulders as if it were a robe, a robe of righteousness for those who trust in Christ alone and by which we are justified in his eyes. How amazing is the grace of God. You see, the point of this passage, the point of Revelation 20, is not to give the church a clear picture of the millennium. That's not the point. If that were the point, it'd be clearer. It's not. This is a Deuteronomy 29, 29 thing. This is the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. That's not the point. Instead, the point of this passage is to remind us that because of Jesus' faithful and obedient work at Calvary, Satan is bound. He might be bound partially today, but soon he will not only be fully bound, but he will be vanquished forever when he is thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound. Though evil seems to go unchecked today, it's not. It is on a leash. And our sovereign God will allow it to go only as far as it must go in order to fulfill his sovereign will, which we know is for our good and his ultimate glory. And Satan is bound specifically because Jesus was victorious. He won the battle at victory. The battle is over and Jesus has won. And church, because we are his bride, not only is Jesus victorious, but we are too. The church triumphant will rejoice now and forever because our victory is assured and our enemy is laid low. The purpose of this book, the book of Revelation, we've said it many times, is to equip the church to endure and to persevere during times of suffering and trial and persecution. And knowing that Jesus wins in the end, and knowing that we win as well because we are his in faith, is the single greatest truth to help us endure suffering and trials in this day. Because we know that in Christ, we are victorious in the next life, the one that will last forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your sovereign grace 
that saw fit to send your son to this world to live as one of us, yet perfectly and without sin, and to die in our place on a cross, defeating Satan, sin, and death forever for all those who would trust in you. Thank you for your sovereign and good plan of redemption. Thank you for the reminder of that in this passage that you won. And by faith in Christ, we are on the winning team. Our king will return in majesty and glory. And our king, your son, will defeat the powers of evil forever. And we will reign with you forever as well. Father, help us to live today in light of that truth. Help us to embrace that determined reality. And help us to live today in light of that. May that affect the decisions we make. The endeavors we give ourselves to. How we lead our families. How we steward our resources and time. May we live today, Lord, as your people in light of the fact that this is true and it's going to happen. May that truth encourage us and strengthen us and, and, and give us everlasting hope to fight against sin and to faithfully be on mission for Jesus until he brings us home. But Lord, we know that there are some among us in this room, in our families, in our community, in our neighborhoods and workplaces, who are not on that winning team. Because they have not responded to the gospel. They have not placed their trust, their faith in Christ alone to forgive them of their sins. Lord, we beg of you to give them new life this morning. Open their eyes to the truth and lead them across the line of faith to trust in Christ alone as their only hope. Would you, by your grace, welcome new worshipers into your family this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.